This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. I don't believe it's a person, you know, a stranger that happened to, to walk through uh, town that, that day that did this. The injuries uh, to her suggest that there were, um, you know, a, a fit of rage during this incident. Newspaper clippings from the Times show police were looking for people seen nearby, releasing three sketches based on witness descriptions of one man in particular. There were people that were in the store that day, uh, most of which I believe have been identified, at least uh, one male subject that was never identified, so there were sketches put out to the public at that time. The mystery man has never turned up, and investigators began to look at the people Jeanette knew best. I personally feel as though the composite sketch has become a bit of a red herring in this case. In the reports that I have, many other agencies contacted Michigan State Police for copies of the composite, and they appeared to be treating it as the composite being the actual suspect. The article released with the composite sketch reads as follows. Police officers investigating the January 19th slaying of Jeanette Gale Robertson in the pet shop of the Gamble's department store in Reed City are requesting the assistance of the public in identifying a white male who may have a clue in connection with the grisly murder. The man, approximately 20 to 30 years of age, about 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 9 in height, has light to blondish brown hair, weighs about 170 pounds, and was possibly wearing a blue jacket. Three sketches of the person, described by three different witnesses, have been reproduced. The person is believed to have been in the Gamble store shortly before the estimated time Mrs. Robertson was murdered, between two and three. Detective Sergeant George Pratt of the Reed City State Police Post and Detective James Southworth of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department have emphasized that while officers are interested in talking with this person, he is not considered a suspect. Officers hope that he may have seen or heard something that may be of assistance to them. Now we know that often when police say this person is not a suspect, they are only doing that to cover their asses. Sometimes they just want the person to come forward and that person is a suspect. And sometimes it is just someone they believe may have seen something and could be helpful. The problem here is that we don't know which one it is. We don't know if this person they were seeking was a witness or if they believe this person could have been the killer. All we know is that there may still be an unidentified person who they have not yet spoken to. The problem with this being so uncertain is that if people believe the person in the sketch is the perpetrator and not just a witness, then that means that they may not even be sharing information with police about anyone they may have seen that day that fits a different description. And that's why I think this composite could be more harmful than helpful with regard to this case.
Now we're going to talk about the psychic. I know. I usually groan, too, when I hear people talking about psychics when it comes to cases involving law enforcement because I'm someone who likes to stick to the facts. But the same month that the composite sketch was done, a psychic did get involved with this case. I wouldn't generally even mention it because what psychics do has nothing to do with facts and evidence and nothing that they offer is admissible in court. In the same way that a polygraph test really has no value other than how a person may react when asked to take one, nothing a psychic tells you can be used to convict someone. But bringing a psychic to the crime scene and walking her past employees who might be persons of interest could have proved interesting simply from the standpoint of how those employees may or may not have reacted to her. I can't tell you what Detective Pratt's thoughts and intent were when he agreed to work with Trixie Shepard, but she was allowed down in the basement and even accompanied police to where Jeanette lived. On February 28, 1983, a list of items were obtained from Reed City Police Chief Philip Rathbun, who had gotten them directly from Marion Fisher, Jeanette's mother. These items were to be forwarded to Trixie Shepard. I met with Trixie a few times, and she was a delight. During our first conversation, I asked her to tell me how she became involved with the Robertson investigation. She told me her sister had called to tell her about the murder in the gamble store. Trixie lived just out of town, so the next time she was in Reed City, she went to the police station and told them she needed something Jeanette wore, something personal so she could do a reading. At some point, she received a necklace she was told was Jeanette's, but she didn't get anything off of it, so she told them she needed other items. The Michigan State Police property report receipt shows five items were turned over to Chief Rathbun from Marion Fisher, Jeanette's mother, and forwarded to Trixie. To the best of her recollection, all of Trixie's readings happened about a month or so after the murder. She said that she met with police a total of three different times. The first trip was to the gamble store. Among the things that Trixie told me was that she believed Jeanette was choked unconscious before most of the other injuries occurred and the killer carried her to where her body was eventually found. She also saw a vision of a man in the back room. She said, He moved a board and then he was lying in sand. I saw him put a cigarette out in that sand. Trixie said that when they first went downstairs to the pet department, there was a tarp hanging in the doorway between the pet department and what she thought might be another room. She asked to go through it, and when she did, she saw the second set of stairs. She told them that she saw the killer going up these stairs, but there were boxes stacked upstairs in front of the stair entrance on the day that Jeanette was murdered. That's why nobody saw him, she told me. She thought that those boxes had provided a cover of sorts for him to hide behind while he checked that the coast was clear. Trixie told me that when they left Gambles that day after she walked through, they went to the police station and she was shown some pictures. She looked at the first picture and said, That man will be lucky if he lives a month. She said they told her he was lucky. She said he was an older man, thin-faced, and his eyes were set back in his head a bit. He looked sick and drawn. I didn't see the heart attack, she told me, but I thought it might have been his heart. 
When shown the next picture, she said, he's worried about his wife. The next picture was a woman. She's pregnant and the cord is wrapped around the baby's neck, Trixie told them. They need to watch out for her when she delivers. After being shown another picture, she said, that man is a cop killer. He's going to kill a cop one of these days. Trixie said that on her next trip, police took her to Jeanette's apartment. She said they never went in, and she didn't even know which one was Jeanette's, but she told the detective, there's a horse by the window. She said one of the police went up to the window, and when he came back to the car, told her there was a horse statue there that he could see through the window. Trixie told me all of this on the phone, and then we set up a time to meet in person. I went to where she lived, and she led me into her apartment, settling into her chair, which was one of those orthopedic-type things that, at the touch of a button, could rise up and a bit forward, making it easier for a person to back into before they used that same button to lower it to a fully seated position. Trixie was wheelchair-bound. I sat down in the chair next to her and pulled out my pencil. I didn't even have my notebook out before she had foraged in the pile of paperwork beside her and pulled out a piece of notebook paper. I drew this for you. She handed it to me. I'm sure I gasped when I saw it, because she had drawn a diagram of the basement and the adjoining men's store basement side, and it was probably more accurate than I could have done at the time. She hadn't even been there in decades. I don't know if it came across in the initial episode, but the basement pet department, back room, and adjoining basement room and storage area are an odd little labyrinth of doors and spaces, and it's difficult for me to this day to picture it without going back to the video I took that day. Describing it is difficult. Drawing the floor layout from memory three decades later is quite a feat. Nothing in Trixie's story changed the second time we spoke, but she did elaborate a bit, and with the help of the diagram, she said she had remembered a little more. She went over her recollections regarding the pictures that she had been shown by police. She said the man with the heart problem who died was a kind person. Nothing about him bothered her. The other man, the one who was worried about his wife, she said he was thin, not as thin as the man with the heart problem, but of thin build and had dark hair. She believed the female she was shown in the picture could have been his wife, and she was pregnant. She repeated that the cord had been wrapped around the baby's neck, but the baby had been born okay. The man she told police was a cop killer gave her a terrible feeling, she said. Now, I have no way of knowing if the pictures that I showed Trixie were any of the same ones police did, although I think it's likely a few of them were. I also believe a couple were new to her and a few that I think may have been shown to her by police I didn't ask about, simply because by the time I met with her, I believed that they had been ruled out. Of the six pictures I brought, two made her uncomfortable. She pointed to one and said, I think he's hiding something. That was it. A bit later, mid-conversation, she motioned for the pictures again, and I handed them back to her. She went through them slowly, pulled out the same two and stared at them, shaking her head. These two, something with these two. I wish that all of my audio with Trixie had survived. I recorded her on two occasions, 
but at the time, the podcast wasn't even an idea in my head. I was doing book research, and I only recorded her, so I had something to fall back on if my notes weren't thorough enough. You can hear me scribbling furiously in this audio, though. What time he put the cigarette? So he put on gloves after he had the cigarette. Right. While he was back there in the sand. Right. Um, do you know what color the gloves were? Uh, I think it was a dark color, a gray light. <clears throat> and then he wore them through the whole attack? I think so. Do you, can you tell when he took them off? I don't remember. was in the morning. Did you see, could you see anything that he did prior to the, that day before laying back there? Can you picture anything else he did that day? No. Okay. Can you see where he put the clothes that he took off? In a bag. Is it a plastic bag, paper? I don't know. No. I think it was a uh, paper bag. And what did he do with that bag? I I don't know, no. but I think he burned it. Sometimes I don't know where he burned it, but I think he burned it. Okay. Did you see any weapons? Uh, I think he had a knife, a, a jackknife. see any guns. Uh, but I can just remember it in the area that he did things to her. Looking at her eyes when she was speaking, it was like watching someone try to grasp an object that was just out of reach. I can see it, she said, quietly, and then told me about the killer having a cigarette and what she described was the corner of that back L-shaped room along the side and back of the pet department. Back in the crook of that L is a area where she said he had moved a board aside 
and smoked a cigarette, then put it out in the sandy area and waited for Jeanette to come down. According to Trixie, he grabbed her somewhere in that narrow area of the back room, put a hand over her mouth, grabbed her by the neck, and choked her. When she was passed out, he carried her down the narrow walkway, laid her down, and proceeded to do the things that he did. There seemed to be gaps in the action that she was telling me, big blank spaces between one thing and the next, and it was at that point that something occurred to me. Trixie, you don't see the killer, do you? I mean, you can't describe him. Oh, no, she said. Well, what do you see then? I asked. I see what he's doing, she told me. I don't know why it was such an eerie, jarring realization, but the fact that she was seeing it from a first-person perspective hit me like a gut punch. Trixie described how when he was finished doing the terrible things, he went back up that narrow hallway, out through the pet department to the adjoining storage space, and up the back set of cement stairs. She said he waited until it was all clear and then went out. I asked her, well, where did he go then? She thought for a minute and said, not far. To the left and up another stairway, I think. She said maybe to an office. How does he feel, Trixie? Can you tell? She'd been concentrating so hard with her eyes closed, moving and pointing with her hands in different directions as she spoke. Really mad. Upset. She also told me that she could see him putting clothes and gloves in a bag. Of course I knew that none of this was evidence, but it was riveting nonetheless. So I just asked questions like I would if she was describing something she was really seeing. Because to her, it sure seemed like she was. And then she said it again. He did horrible things. Her face would go slack when she said it, in a way that suggested she was internalizing the viciousness of it. Trixie wasn't the only psychic I learned had become at least peripherally associated with this case. I was told by a few locals that a woman named Viola, a well-known and liked member of the community, told numerous people that she believed it was a prominent businessman who had murdered Jeanette. Blanche, the woman who'd come into gambles for Ick that day, is her daughter. She told me that her mother did say it was a prominent businessman, but she wouldn't have known who it was. It sounds like with Trixie, it's not as easy as them seeing a face in their head and knowing who it is. To Blanche's knowledge, her mother had never told anyone who this businessman was because she may not have even known him. I would later come to believe that this pronouncement and how it spread through the community may have been the impetus of one of the theories about this case, which involved a prominent businessman, a local man who owned a business in the area is one of the names I heard about constantly, because Jeanette had worked for just a few months at his business. I think, though, that what the locals were doing was grasping, grasping at anything and anyone to fill the gaping hole where information should be. Another thing that plays into problems surrounding this case and other cold cases, are the assumptions people make that keep good information from coming into law enforcement. Let's talk about the crazy conspiracy theories and local gossip that evolves into what people believe to be true about the case. 
If the community believes something inaccurate about a cold case, that could keep them from calling information into police that might be relevant. If half the town, of a population of 2,500, has bought into a false narrative around a case, statistically it's going to be pretty tough to get the right people to come forward with information they may have. Psychologists will tell you that one thing we humans do quite well is find meaningful patterns around us and then make inferences from them. And we do this often so that we will feel more in control of events where we may otherwise feel powerless. Conspiracy beliefs often occur because of cognitive biases that play into how we process information. We all naturally tend to give more credence to evidence that supports beliefs that we already have, rather than ones that may contradict them. There is something called proportionality bias, which is our human tendency to assume that a significant event must be due to some significant action, rather than a simple one. An example of this would be people that think that Kennedy wasn't the victim of a lone gunman, but rather a vast conspiracy on a large scale. Studies have shown that people who are apt to believe conspiracy theories often involve themselves in behaviors like spreading rumors or being suspicious of the motives of others. It does make sense that if you were the type that would act in that way, spreading rumors or being suspicious, you would assume that sort of thing was natural to everyone else, when in fact that is not the case. These are the same types of personalities that while they may not be able to come up with a valid explanation for an event, are quick to say that they believe there is some sort of cover-up involved and that someone is purposely trying to withhold information that's a pretty easy position to take when you don't have to look at any facts. You can always fall back on the oh, the police must have covered something up type of position. Donald Trump alleges that my dad was involved in assassinating JFK. Now, let's be clear. This is nuts. This is not a reasonable position. This is just kooky take the red pill you go down the rabbit hole and I'll show you how far it goes the CIA in the 60s I'm gonna cover this history later they developed the term conspiracy theory for pseudo-intellectuals that get hurt by learned men and women everyone's having their water poisoned everyone's having deadly vaccines pushed on them everyone is having weaponized television aimed at them Pizzagate is real Sandy Hook is a synthetic completely fake Vegas is as phony as a $3 bill or his Obama's birth certificate. They killed him a couple weeks after he was on. He died of a heart attack two weeks after being on the show. You think I'm happy that there's about a 98% chance they killed Scalia? And folks, I've been told this by high up folks. They say, listen, Obama and Hillary both smell like sulfur. Al Gore, it came out in major news uh, back in 99, flies around with a refrigerator full of blood. It's not human intelligence. I want what God promised us, and I won't sit here and watch Satan steal it. That's the fight. That's the key. 9-11 was an inside job. 9-11 was an inside job. 
That last voice was Alex Jones. He's a nutbag who, I assume, has horribly high blood pressure. It would be funny if there weren't millions of people who lap this stuff up like the last slurps from a glass of chocolate milk. Unfortunately, there are a great many people out there who think just like Alex Jones. The truth is that people who have a tendency to think this way apply that same kind of thinking to homicides. Because more often than not, law enforcement releases little to nothing as far as information, the landscape of conversation around these cases is ripe for people to fill in the blanks with things like pedophile pizza rings, cop blackmail theories, and in this case, a suspect wandering around underground in a system of tunnels, popping up out from a manhole somewhere in town and making his getaway. The local businessman theory, in this case, had nothing on what I refer to as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll theory. And every case has at least one of these. It's that exciting story that involves sex or drugs or maybe even a hit. And yes, I got that too. Some people believe that a rich, prominent businessman put out a hit on Jeanette Robertson. Though I never got a single cogent, plausible reason why he would want to do that. In this case, that sex, drugs, and rock and roll theory involved Jeanette, who, might I remind you, was a practicing Jehovah's Witness, involved in a threesome, and drug running in the underground tunnels, and an innocent young woman walking in on it all in the wee hours of the night. It's preposterous, and at some point, you have to wonder if there is someone out there actively muddying the waters. Then there are the people who will lie right to your face, and you start wondering if it's a lie they grew up believing or a more sinister lie, particularly when that lie involves the same prominent businessman. When I was doing research on this case, I spent a great deal of time down at the Buckboard Bar, ironically, asking the owner and longtime Reed City resident questions about town dynamics. Unlike police, who start on the inside circle and work outward, I started outward and worked in. A local bar in a small town is a great place to get information, particularly if the bar in question was around during the time you want to know about. I always went in first thing in the morning, when the old gentlemen in town were having coffee and gossiping. One day as I went to leave, a man who had been sitting at the corner of the bar when I arrived stepped ahead of me. The entrance of the buckboard is a small foyer with two glass doors. After the first door closed behind me, essentially locking me into that vestibule with him, the man stopped, blocked the door as well as my exit, and turned to look back at me over his shoulder. You asking questions about that murder? Yes, I am, I told him. Walk with me he said, mysteriously. So I did. I asked him his name, and he replied, let's wait on that. Okay, I said, and then he started in on his story. I was ten at the time, and my mom took us in there. Wait, on the day of the murder? We were standing right in front of Reed City Hardware, formerly Gamble's, when I said this. I had decided not to walk too far with the stranger who didn't want to divulge his name for obvious reasons. 
Have I mentioned that he was rather large, tall, looming over me, and he had a bit of bulk to him? <sighs> yeah, we were there. Like kids do, we ran right down to the pet department. I saw Jeanette. She was trying to work, but was down there with her, and they were arguing. I even saw him grab her arm. Okay, so beneath that beep is the name of the same businessman that I believe many people in town had grasped onto as being the prominent businessman due to Viola the Psychic's prediction. Some people had mentioned other male business owners and even the owner of the store itself. But this man he was talking about was the one who owned the business that Jeanette had worked for for a couple months. The stranger continued. The entrance between the bar and the pet department was open. You know, down there where the tunnels are, those coal chutes. I am certain my expression glazed over at that point. I knew there wasn't any open entrance from the bar to the pet store at the time of the murder. That would have been a hole in the wall on the men's store basement side, which did not exist. Perhaps he was talking about the doorway between the pet department and the adjoining storage area. Or maybe he was just making stuff up. I had no idea. What I do know is that the coal chute entrances would not have even been visible to a customer in the pet department, as they would have been in the back room. And as I have already covered, there was no access beyond those points into the tunnel beneath the front sidewalk on the day of the murder. Either way, it didn't seem to me like he knew what he was talking about. But then he told me he had family that were cops, and as a matter of fact, his dad was a cop. Oh, really? I said. Who was your dad? I'm familiar with all of the names in the report of the police who worked back then. He put his hand out and shook mine, firmly, and he said the name. Oh. So, without being too specific, he was the son of one of the first responders on the day of Jeanette's murder. He continued. My dad was really upset about the way this case was handled. He was upset for years. Rathbun was chief at the time, and you pretty much did what he told you to do. That's the type of person that he was. Did police ever talk to you or your mom about what you saw that day? I asked, cutting through the bullshit. No, I told Chuck Davis what I knew, but that's it. He eventually turned on his heel, starting away from me and said, so now you have everything I know. I didn't even bother asking him the follow-up questions that I would have if I thought there was anything to his story. Questions like, so you knew who that man was at 10 years old? I don't even know any of the business people in town. And if you were 10, why weren't you in school? What time did this occur? And if you were there with your mother and siblings, why hadn't anyone mentioned it? The entire family of one of the first responders being at Gamble's on the day in question isn't something that would have gone unknown by the rest of the town for three decades. Particularly if your relative was prone to chatting a bit too freely with information already. I was certain that if it were true, and his father thought there was anything to that story that his son had just told me, it would have come up in one of the reports. It did not. What he told me felt more like something he'd heard over the years and repeated, or maybe he'd seen something occur on another day, maybe even involving someone else. 
Maybe he did see someone grab Jeanette's arm when he was down there one day. But he didn't see the person he says he did. Of that, I am sure. I mentioned this encounter to Detective Pratt when I interviewed him, and he told me, very simply, that he had no indication that this person, or any of his siblings, or his mother, had been in gambles that day. So there you go. But it shows you what you're up against when dealing with small towns and cold cases. People get ideas in their head, or hear strange things and repeat them, and eventually it becomes what they believe to be reality. And unfortunately, it leaves absolutely no room in their heads for any other possibility. That could be a reason why the right leads aren't coming in to law enforcement. Because the people who might have information don't know they have it, because for years they've been led to believe the wrong thing about a murder. Decades of that kind of thing add up. Miscommunications are a problem, too, and they started way back when the case was active. In March of 1983, the leads had appeared to run dry. This is only a couple months after the murder, and a short article in the Pioneer titled Police Asking for Help noted, Numerous persons from the surrounding area who were in the gamble store that day have been contacted by police. Those persons, and anyone not contacted, have been urged to phone the state police, the county sheriff, or the Reed City Police. All three phone numbers were given, and that portion, those persons, and anyone not contacted, was underlined. Michigan State Police had issued this press release two days earlier. Investigating officers of the Reed City Police Department, Osceola County Sheriff's Department, and Michigan State Police are requesting public cooperation in the Jeanette Robertson homicide investigation. On January 19, 1983, numerous persons of the surrounding area were in the Gamble store. Hopefully all of you have been contacted regarding your visit there on that date. Officers are asking that anyone, whether you have been already contacted or not, please contact Michigan State Police, Reed City, 832-2221, and provide the requested information as asked. Officers are particularly interested in what was purchased, cash register receipts, the time of day the visit was made, and who you may have been with or may have seen. Anyone, whether you have been already contacted or not, is underlined in the Michigan State Police report. Below the press release, Detective Pratt notated in the report, this information was released to the area television, radio, and newspapers. Unfortunately, it was not published in the newspapers as given. However, the radio and local TV did carry it properly. What they were asking for, specifically, was anyone who had been in the store, whether they had already spoken to police or not, to call in. It doesn't appear that that point got across appropriately. In that same article, Detective Pratt said response to their pleas of help from the community had not been good. We could sure use a few more calls. A lot of people think that they have nothing to contribute, but they may have something we really need. Perhaps people didn't think they had anything of value. Maybe they didn't want to get involved. Whatever the reason, law enforcement was at a loss, 
and that was just a couple months after the murder. To me, this sort of explains why people like Chris Mills and Lee Peterson might have been targeted to look into, especially Lee a full year after, and only because of an anonymous tip. Whether they look good for the crime or not, it doesn't appear that they had much to go on in the early days of the investigation. Much, if not all, that was happening on the case at this point was them checking with other law enforcement entities and comparing notes on other unsolved murders with similar M.O., all to no avail. That, and responding to requests for that composite drawing, which, as I have noted, may or may not have even been the suspect. Another standout excerpt from the report was in November of 1984, a couple years later. Two Reed City residents were interviewed, quote, regarding statements made by a former housekeeper who has confided with them about the homicide. The subjects were apparently concerned about what she had told police. In the report, Detective Pratt notes, I have talked to the housekeeper in the past, and she professes to be a witch with certain powers. This is the kind of thing that was coming in at this point. The last paragraph entered in the report that year, almost two years after the murder, strikes me as one of the most telling entries in the entire report. Investigative leads in this case have ceased, with the exception of individual feelings. At times, calls regarding information have been received from persons closely associated with the case, relatives, witnesses, fellow employees, or other police officers with their information, usually already checked out, but if not, investigated without any substantial information being gained. The following letter was written by Jeanette's mother, Marion Fisher, directly to the killer, and it was printed in the newspaper not long after her brutal murder. To the murderer of Jeanette Robertson. Jeanette was a wonderful person, not only to her family and friends, but to every person she ever came in contact with. She tried to help all creatures when they needed help, humans, birds, fish, plants, and animals alike. Her heart went out to everybody and everything. She is one of God's children. Yes, she had a heart, a heart as big as the universe itself. I love her. Everybody loved her. Except one person. You. Maybe you didn't know her. And then again, maybe you did. But nevertheless, from the moment you committed the greatest sin against God and his children, you were condemned to hell. A hell that will follow you every moment of your days. A hell that will increase in velocity until it will not let you live any longer on this earth. Our great God in heaven is the only one that will ever be able to help you now. Maybe, just maybe, he will find it in his heart to forgive you of your great sin and have mercy on your soul. Jeanette's soul is with her God. Her human body is lying in a coffin and her husband and children are mourning for her just as I am. It will be hard for them to begin their lives again without their mother and wife. With God's help, they will do it. However, 
there is still a shadow hanging over them. You, Jeanette's murderer, my plea to you is to confess your sin and ask for God's mercy. By our great God, I appeal to any person who was in the gamble store on that fatal day, or anyone having any information, no matter how small it may seem to you, to come forward. Your little bit of information will help put the puzzle together. Please get in touch with the state police, sheriff's department, or the Reed City Police immediately. And may God bless you. Marion Fisher, Jeanette's mother. In the next episode, we'll learn more about Marion Fisher, her role within the community, and how it may or may not have related to the events around the death of her daughter. Stay tuned.